Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by NatureBox, shipping tasty and guilt-free snacks right to your door. With over 100 flavors to choose from, you'll never get bored of snacking again. Try NatureBox for free by going to naturebox.com culture. That's naturebox.com culture. And by the Netflix original documentary series, Chef's Table. Go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. Directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Badass Matriarchy Edition. It's Wednesday, May 20th, 2015. On today's show, Mad Max Fury Road is the reboot of the great 80s classic trilogy from director and writer George Miller. And then the end of Mad Men is at the end of an era, an end of an era in TV. Who knows? I didn't watch it. Neither did Dana. So we're going to be pinch hit for today by Jessica Winter and um, John Swansburg. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. And joining me as well is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steve. Uh, Before we dig in, I actually have a bit of business, which is I completely forgot to thank the wonderfully gracious hosts of my Toronto radio booth last week, uh, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. They were delightful to meet and interact with. I was beyond chuffed that many people there appear to listen to and care about our show. Uh, It really, really made my day. So thank you very much to them. Julia, do we have other business? Uh, we do. We have a couple things to mention. First, I should note what our Sleep Plus segment will be at the end of the show. We're going to talk road trips in the spirit of both Mad Max and Mad Men, which both have featured road trips of various sorts recently. And I also want to mention one other thing for Sleep Plus members, which is we have just launched a very cool and very ambitious thing we're calling the Slate Academy. In this very cool multimedia but heavily podcast-centered feature, Jamel Bowie, one of our staff writers, and Rebecca Onion, our history columnist, have teamed up to present the new history of American slavery. They've basically joined forces and merged their capacious curiosities and interrogated all of the leading historians about slavery today to understand what they're finding and how their views of that institution are growing and changing, and then have brought back fascinating insights from that exploration to our Slate Plus members. So if you are not yet a member, 
Go check it out, slate.com slash academy, and you can sign up and glean what they have learned. I did not know about that. That's exciting. I love them both as writers. I like to hear them as podcasters. Yeah, they're both great podcasters, and there are some written components of the series as well. But it's a really fascinating look at how the history on the subject is changing and also kind of a good refresher course if you, if what you know basically comes from like high school history plus having seen 12 Years a Slave. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, Slate Academy business since we first all talked about it at the Slate retreat, you know, whenever it was last September. I'm so glad it's finally here. All right, moving on. Dana, I have a question for you. Can you tell me what Mad Max, Babe, Pig in the City, Lorenzo's Oil, and Witches of Eastwick all have in common? Yes, I can, but only because I just researched this last week to write a review of Mad Max Fury Road. They were all directed by George Miller, the not very prolific, but wildly different movie-making writer-director of the Mad Max movie. I know. Well, so, I mean, the point that I'm making and that you've helped me make is that it's quite surprising the movies that Miller has made in his career. I think he's, correct me if I'm wrong, he's overwhelmingly known for the movie series that he launched and that launched him, Mad Max, right, starting in 1979, this low-budget 1979 Australian kind of semi-post-apocalyptic thriller. But he went on to do such varied and interesting work. Anyhow, all of which is to say, today we're talking about his new film, which is a reboot of the series, the Mad Max series. It's called Mad Max Fury Road, and it stars Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, or however you pronounce her name. Dana, I'd love to know, uh, critics seem to adore this movie. Did you? You know, I did not throw myself at its feet the way the critical establishment seems to. I, I found it very visually innovative and really enjoyed the first 45 minutes or so. And then, honestly, it started to wear on me in all of its tank-exploding beauty. Um, but then I started to read the, the reviews rolling in after having written a review that sort of extolled its visual originality but confessed that I got really tired and bored after an hour and a half of car crashes. I was amazed to see that this movie is being hailed as basically a masterpiece by almost every critic I know. So I'm wondering what you guys thought and what I'm missing. Should I see it in 3D? I'm not even getting here. People are saying that like 3D is the modality to appreciate this movie. And did you? I did not see it in 3D. And I was also so bored. (laughs) I found this movie so boring. Beautiful, much to admire. Didn't you have some hopes in the first hour, though? No, I was abjectly bored the whole time. I almost feel like I should just go home. I can hear the pitchforks beginning to scrape (laughs) against one another out amongst our fan base. The rusty salvaged pitchforks of the future. Yeah, and people will say, oh, can you have you no love for a glorious action movie? You know, I found a couple things to admire here, but the fundamental inhumanity of it. I mean, you know, it's intentional. The movie is not trying to sucker you in with some romantic story or tale of heartbreak or it's literally just action. It's just action over a skeletal framework of human desire and woe. And the humanity was insufficient to pique my interest. But I mean, I think a lot of critics who are not just action fans are seeing that humanity in it and seeing it as this like reduced, you know, it's the very spareness and the very sort of inexpressiveness of the characters that makes it so emotionally powerful. I mean, I'm I'm seeing lots of arguments like that out there. Steve, did you have any of that? Well, I I went in with the highest of hopes because uh, I admire George Miller, kind of like most of the original trilogy, um, though I'm the odd person who vastly prefers Mad Max to Road Warrior, the second one, and uh, loved the preview for this film. It was titillating to the maximum degree. And I didn't 
like it very much. I mean, I, I have to side with Julia on this. I do think it's a very thin human framework that all of the noise and Sturm und Drang has been plunked down upon. And, um, you know, what I think is interesting about that is that, you know, I hadn't seen the original Mad Max in, I mean, it could be close to 30 years. So I went back and rewatched it this morning. And I love it as much as I remember loving it. And the interesting thing about that movie is, first of all, it was made completely on the cheap. It was totally unexpected. Mel Gibson was not yet a star. He's terrific in it. It's more of a piece with, I would say, Billy Jack, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Spaghetti Westerns. It has a cult vibe with like a punk apocalyptic aesthetic overlaid on it. But the funny thing is, it's totally inverted from this Mad Max in the sense that Aside from a couple of violent set pieces early on, the amount of human drama relative to action set pieces is totally flipped. There's the story of Mel Gibson. It's all the backstory that's motivated the whole series. His loving relationship with his beautiful young wife, his toddler son, and the world hasn't yet become post-apocalyptic. It's falling apart and civil society is frayed to almost the very last thread. It's got funny contemplative moments, funny in the sense that unexpectedly contemplative moments and domestic tranquility moments, which motivate the whole subsequent series, but then the series completely loses. You know, the other amazing thing it has is actual suspense scenes. I mean, there there are scenes with the wife and the kid and the motorcycle gang, and you're on the edge of your seat. I mean, it's actually directed for suspense, and suspense is all about withholding action and making people die inside wondering what's going to happen next and all of that seems to me has been squeezed out of it and and inverted and now it's just a shit ton of noise i i was i was disappointed i mean there were things i liked about it but it just it didn't work for me really I mean, so let's try and take the counter argument and interrogate it a little bit, since it sounds like we all agree to varying degrees about this film. You know, if you look at the human narrative that this basically two hour long chase scene is stitched onto, you have Mad Max played here by Tom Hardy, who once again has a contraption covering his beautiful mouth. I feel like, Dana, when we watched his performances, Bane, we were like, why would you ever cover? Exactly. And they're still doing it. <laughs> beautiful The best lips mug. in show business. <laughs> And once again, there's like a weird like prong over it for most of the beginning of the movie. But he's almost a side character and he tries to escape from and then finds himself at the service of Imperator Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron. And she does manage to wordlessly convey with her scowling visage smeared with axle grease a sense of purpose, mission, nobility, etc. I agree. She is the best thing in the movie. And she is also given, essentially, the one scene of dialogue that gives any character background whatsoever. How do you know this place even exists? I was born there. So why'd you leave? I didn't. I was taken as a child. Stolen. You've done this before? Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And them? They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption. 
I mean, I will say I spent the whole movie waiting for somebody to talk, and then that's what she said. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Why did I ever wish for more dialogue? You know, but so, but if you look at it structurally, so we've got Mad Max as a side character. We've got Imperator Furiosa and her glowering eyes and mysterious mission. And what she's doing is trying to help the harem of pampered wives escape their imprisonment in the citadel where they are beholden to the grotesque ruler Immortanjo. Is that his name? Yeah. Well, we don't hear his name said that much in the movie, yeah. but that's the name that's given for him. Played, by the way, by Hugh Kies Baron. I hope I'm saying his name right, who played the bad guy in the original Mad Max. So, you know, there's a lot of not just callbacks, but actual casting from the original 36 years ago. Right. So basically, we we are introduced to this community that is full of struggling, impoverished people who have no water except for when Emerton Joe uh, wastefully releases gigantic spurts of it with no container mechanisms and then stops at the moment. And what Charlize wants to do is save the five swimsuit issue models from this guy. <laughs> She's like, let me look at this teeming mass of dismaying humans. You know who I'm going to save? Rosie Huntington. Will be. <laughs> you know, so then you've got these like... And Elvis Presley's granddaughter. Yeah, you've got these, you know, sort of gazelle-like figures in the desert clad in flapping asymmetrical waves of muslin who are not the most relatable chicas I've ever encountered, right? And so Imperator Furiosa is just like trying to save the prettiest, already most pampered uh, among <laughs> this horrible group of people. And she has no plans to, to do anything for the rest right, of civilization. Right, this is not a revolutionary movement. No, no, this is like a nihilist mission as it begins. Like, let me just save the prettiest girls and put them in a garden somewhere. So that's the scant human framework we have upon which these wild pyrotechnic and kind of visually gorgeous chases are attached. And it just wasn't, I just couldn't affix myself to the heart in it. I could admire tons of visual touches about it. I mean, these vehicles are crazy looking. I loved your line in your review, Dana, where you called it a version of Richard Scarry's cars and trucks <laughs> and things that go, because they pretty much turn everything into a car that they possibly right, it's could. it's busy town. It's apocalyptic busy town. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And that's the problem with the Richard Scarry books, too. They're high on visual impact, but low on plot. <laughs> it's always just the pigs trying to get to a picnic. <laughs> Like, forget about it. But Can it, Huckle the Cat just be developed for once? <laughs> Why does Mr. Frumble keep losing his hat? But I did love, there are just some, like, bravura gorgeous touches. I love, you know, so there are these creatures called the War Boys who are these white chalk-wearing warrior types. Who worship the God King, basically. Yes, and who are dying for chances to martyr themselves and go to Valhalla. Apparently, the afterlife has maintained its identity as Valhalla through to this apocalyptic future. And they do this thing before they think they're going to martyr themselves where they spray their teeth and mouth with like silver spray paint basically which they keep on hands at all time in case a martyrdom opportunity arises and there's just something so fresh and striking about that particular detail well the movie is full of those kinds of details where it feels like it's it's certainly a, a solid weird world that george miller has built up from scratch there's nothing sort of cheap or rip-offy about the way that this movie's world is built you know down to the every design detail and that's the stuff that kept me interested for a long time despite the you know as you say very very high noise and explosion level i mean we sound like such oldsters we need somebody at a microphone defending the brilliance and greatness of this movie which is, I mean, I can't believe I'm the person in the position of arguing for it, but it's undeniably kinetic, kinetic and beautiful. And if George Miller is telling the truth, almost entirely done with practical effects, both car stunts and human stunts, which is pretty incredible when you see the things that happen with these cars. 
Yes, that is amazing. But that makes me just want to watch a how do they make this documentary about one of these chase scenes in a way. Right? I'm following one stunt woman on Twitter who was um, one of Imperador Furios's stunt women. And it's pretty fantastic to see the stuff she's doing, you know, tied to the bottom of moving cars and stuff. And the other thing I will say is so the human framework is... I feel too small to carry me through the movie with full attention. But then I've also seen some critics arguing that this is a spare and deep philosophical prism for our time as we contemplate our own environmental degradation. Or that it's a feminist parable, right? That's a big argument. And I think I used that word once in my review. But as you say, the feminism is kind of limited to save the supermodels. You know, there's a general plot line of like, oh, fertility, if only women were fighting the patriarchy, maybe we could rebuild the planet. Well, and there's a cool group of old lady warriors, elderly women warriors that they encounter toward the end and that fight on their side for a while. And that's great. I wanted to know more about the Vuvuzelini and the world that they come from. Yeah, but still, like, are those ideas really fresh? I no. Mean, I mean, just, just to, you know, st- stick some old ladies on top of a car and make them be part of the battling is really just, you know, adding in another ingredient to a very familiar stew. But I'm saying that there was a seed of something there that could have been explored more interestingly. Steve, is there, are there, does this film have anything to say about our future on this planet? Like, is there a case for it being, you know, epical and archetypal? And I don't think I pronounced either of those words right, but in some way it's skeletal, bare, basicness being a triumph rather than a flaw? Mm, Well, let me begin by saying I've spent a lifetime trying to figure out the Vuvilini. I've gotten nowhere. But honestly, I don't think so. I mean, I, I again, like, is this a kind of curmudgeonly nostalgia of the kind we're no doubt going to slag off on in our next segment or last segment today? Quite possibly. But, you know, it did seem to me all of the, you know, adjectives of praise being assigned to this movie really are more applicable to the movie it's based on. Something that I see come up in several different reviews, it came up in A.O. Scott's, it also came up in mine, even though I wasn't necessarily praising the film, is that there's a resemblance to silent film. In, in spite of the incredible noise level, right, the story is basically being told kinetically through action and movement. And so maybe that is something to admire about it, even if I agree it is, it's extremely exhausting. One critic in its praise went so far as to compare it because of the way it's chase doubles back, right? His chase goes to a certain point and then turns around and retraces the same steps. And for for that reason, he compared it to Buster Keaton's The General, which to me was a little bit like a really good mad magazine issue being compared to a Rembrandt. But, you know, (laughs) people feel strongly about this movie. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, this movie is Mad Max Fury Road. It's directed by George Miller, who co-wrote the screenplay. It's, of course, a reboot of the old classic late 70s 80s uh, movies in the Mad Max trilogy. We're always very curious to know what you think, but especially now when apparently we believed what other people don't believe about this movie. So check it out. And if you have a strong opinion, come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. Or if our podcast is the small green place where not liking this movie is okay, come join us on Facebook. We will we will supply you with water and seeds, heirloom <laughs> seeds. Go outside, put out your thumb, and Charlize will pick you up. Heirloom, uh, heirloom swimsuit models. All right, moving on. <laughs> All right, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we got? Steven, you know you're going to snack, don't you? Dana, are we or are we not going to banter? <laughs> We will banter, and furthermore, while we banter, we will snack. And when we do, we want our snacking to be worth it, something that's tasty and satisfying but doesn't make you feel bad afterwards. What you need are snacks from NatureBox. You can choose from over 100 healthy and crave-worthy options that get delivered right to your door. I've heard Julia endorse these, and she's really into these snacks. She keeps them at her desk and never gives them to anyone else. Their snacks are all made with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners, and zero grams of trans fat. And best of all, they taste amazing. 
So next time you're hungry, grab jalapeno white cheddar popcorn, pistachio power clusters, and Big Island pineapple, or personalized to your own favorites, and get smart about snacking. So right now, if you go to naturebox.com culture, you can get a free trial of their favorite snacks. Free snacks delivered to your door. What are you waiting for? Go to naturebox.com culture and start your free trial today. Steve? Dana. All right, moving on. All right, well, something a little unusual this week. Neither Dana nor I has interacted uh, with Mad Men sufficiently to talk about it. So we're going to um, we're going to slide out of the booth and into our places come Jessica Winter and John Swansburg, both of whom are big fans of the show, and uh, they're going to talk about the finale. Dana, let's... Uh, Let's hightail it out of here. Yeah, let's retire into the spoiler-free cone. And for those of you who don't want the finale spoiled, you should join us, and our producer, Ann Hepperman, will tell you where to skip ahead to in order to miss the segment. You need to skip ahead to 40 minutes and 49 seconds. All right, you guys, they've left. We're taking over the booth. There's a coup here at the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We felt that we could not let the passing of Mad Men go by without comment on this show. But since Steve and Dana declared themselves unable or unwilling to comment, I have recruited some ace substitutes. Jessica Winter, Slate's Features Editor. Hello, Jessica. Hello. Jessica is a longtime Mad Men watcher who wrote a great piece for us last week arguing that the true subject of Mad Men is women in the workplace. We will see whether the finale bolstered or changed her view of that. And also John Swansburg, our deputy editor. Hello, John. Hey, Julia. And my longtime fellow panelist on the Mad Men TV Club. And so we are going to discuss the finale and whether it was good and what it means about the show and where the show will stand in the pantheon. And as we do that, as Anne just said, we are going to spoil the crud out of the finale. So if you do not want the crud spoiled out of the finale... You should fast forward to the time that Anne just said. Here, she'll say it again. Anne, where should they fast forward to? You should skip ahead to 40 minutes and 49 seconds. Great. Okay. For those of you who are still here, let's dig in. Swans. Yes. What do you think of this finale? God, my feelings are so fluid and conflicted. I didn't love this finale. I think I can still stick to my guns and say I did not did not love this finale. In part because I thought the penultimate episode, the one that aired last week, was so great. And I loved where it ended the show. In part, I was convinced by you in the TV club last week writing about how at the end of the uh, penultimate episode, all the characters were sort of poised on the precipice of this exciting but precarious future. And I don't know, maybe it's just a taste thing, but I kind of like endings that leave people poised in a precarious but exciting future. And I thought I just liked where every where all the main characters were. And then I felt like this episode felt to me like it was just tying up loose ends in a way that I never would have anticipated for this show, a show that seems very confident in leaving loose ends untied. It just felt like um, Matthew Wanner wanted to give a bunch of characters a pretty happy, pat-feeling ending to me. And that... Um, it didn't sit that well with me, Anna, but I, I feel bad complaining about that because I think there's a decent chance that if he'd left a bunch of cliffhangers, I'd be sitting here complaining about the same thing. I feel like complaining about a finale is like complaining about a redesign. It's like reflexive. It just seems like a jerk move. <laughs> All right. So I feel bad, but I didn't love it. We will return to the question of whether John Sponsberg is a jerk <laughs> later. But before that... I look that... forward to your findings. <laughs> um, Jessica, what did you make of it? Were you a fan? Were you anti? What was your take? I was satisfied with the ending. I agree with John that it felt a little gift-wrapped. But I also think that the show has ended many, many times. It ended at the end of season five with Don walking out of Megan's ad shoot to the tune of Nancy Sinatra's You Only Live Twice. It ended at the end of season six with Don showing Sally the brothel where he grew up and where a lot of fans of the show actually said 
there. That's where the show should have ended with Don coming full circle on his life and saying, this is me. I'm not going to live this beautiful lie anymore. I believe that was your turn of phrase, John, in your in your recap. I think that the way that this show happened to end, of all the many ways that it, it could have ended, does leave plenty of possibility and plenty of people standing on the precipice. I mean, Stan and Peggy have their happy ever after, and that sat very well with me. We've been through so much with Peggy that I wanted to give her her romantic comedy ending. But, you know, they have lots of trouble ahead. There's there's going to be lots of conflict there. They uh, do fight all the time. They fight yeah. all the time. <laughs> they will continue to fight all the time, and they will have so much more to fight about now. Um, you know, we don't know how uh, Holloway Harris is going to shake out for, for Joan, but I was really excited that she started her own business instead of running away with her cocaine-discovering Key West retiree boyfriend, who we, we never had a very good feeling about. And Don is always on his, you know, one swing of the pendulum or the other. You know, he he experiences rebirth, and then he bottoms out, and then he experiences rebirth again. And, you know, I, I would have watched that pendulum swing back and forth for many, many more seasons or a few fewer seasons. Because the show wasn't really plot-driven, especially toward the end. It was just about sort of spending time with these characters that you'd grown so fond of. And um, it really, at this point, could have ended anywhere with me and, and I would have been okay. That's a terrible answer to your question. No, but it is the way I, feel. I, I do think that puts your finger on something that's confusing about responding to a finale because there's your responsibility as a critic to try and understand what does this landing, what does this final sentence mean about the whole body of the work, right? Then there's responding to it as a fan. We've been spending time with all these people in this technicolor world full of loving period detail that's often hilarious in unexpected ways, and we're we root for these characters, whether they're good or bad. So there's the kind of rooting for good endings for people you've spent time with. And then you're, there's your like viewer self who's just going to miss the world, right? And which is related to the what do you root for for the characters. But that's also just like, oh, I don't I don't want to say goodbye. Like, you know, I, I don't truly believe that Peggy and Stan in the Mad Men of my viewing were in love or meant to be together. But I couldn't, you know, if that's where they wanted to put her, fine. Like it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I, I don't think that was quite the right way to end her plot line. It didn't feel quite true to her and her prickly nature and the actual beauty of their relationship, which was this, like, real office love story, but not a romantic love story of, like, support and companionship. And to me, Mamma was so smart about those kinds of relationships, it was disappointing to give up all of that subtlety and nuance and say, instead of offering a really detailed portrait of a kind of relationship that you never get to see, we're just going to turn it into, like, Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey, like, (laughs) stuttering to each other on the phone. (laughs) But I also think Mad Men was really good at putting unexpected pairs of people together and showing you how it could work or not work. I mean, Joan and Peggy, as caustic as their relationship could be, also had really great moments of solidarity with each other, especially as the years went on. I remember being completely blindsided by Don and Megan getting together. I thought that Don and... um, Faye were a good match. And so when Don proposed to Megan, I was I was really surprised and a little annoyed by that. And then in the following season, we saw them forge a, a surprisingly egalitarian, strong, loving relationship that Don then, you know, bent over backwards to completely fuck up as Don does with everything in his life. So Peggy and Stan 
were an unexpected match. And there was a little bit of fan service happening there. But with the Don and Megan precedent, I, I, I thought, well, if the show hadn't chosen to stop here, we would have had a really interesting season of watching this odd couple make it together or not. I actually found the balance of fan service to Matthew Weiner maybe trolling us to be really interesting in the finale. <laughs> like Peggy and Stan got their happy ending. Um, they sort of teased us with the possibility of a Joan and Peggy empire. Um, but they also dropped in a total random dude in a sweater <laughs> at a retreat. I had a dream. I was on a, on a shelf in the refrigerator. Someone closes the door and the light goes off. And I know everybody's out there eating. And then they open the door and you see them smiling. But maybe they don't look right at you. And maybe they don't pick you. Then the door closes again. The light goes off. I kept looking at the clock and just watching the minutes tick away. Oh my God, there's only three minutes left of Mad Men and this guy is still still talking. talking. (laughs) Leonard, please be quiet. Um, Another weird thing about the Don, I I think your point about the the sort of strange couplings and the way that the show has sometimes made them work in ways that you didn't anticipate is, is really brilliant and I think that's right. And one thing that was hard for me about this episode dramatically, um, this is actually something that John Hamm has talked a little bit about since the finale, the difficulty for him pulling this off as an actor, is that Don was basically decoupled from everybody and has been for the last few episodes. Like, we we see him have his parting moments with Betty and Peggy and Sally as phone calls. Like, he's not... Mm. Like, those are all really important couplings. Don is the hero or anti-hero of this show, and we've... But we had to watch him in this in this finale basically have his have the endings of those very important relationships with three great female characters as like long distance phone calls which is like a hard thing for actors to pull off I think the actors did as good a job as you could hope but he by necessity because of this you know California pilgrimage of course he had to make he was just separated and so like there was something missing from those great old couples that I was sort of I would have liked to see those things wrapped up in person. You know, that observation prompts in me a sense that maybe the finale is more conclusive than I just argued that it was on Slate.com. I think <laughs> that a post just went up where I praised the many ambiguities of the episode and particularly the ambiguity of what it means at the end that Don, you know, he listens to Leonard's long speech about love and feeling unloved and how hard it is to find human connection in life. He breaks down sobbing, embraces Leonard seemingly decides not to commit suicide, which is strongly hinted that he might be contemplating, wakes up, does some morning yoga, smiles beatifically. There's the ding of a meditation chime. And then we see this amazing Coke ad from 1971 produced by McCann Erickson in real life. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. led to believe that Don went back to New York and made this ad. But a lot is left open about, does this mean that he's re-embracing his entire life and he's going to go support Sally through her mother's death and support his other children and that he's finally off of the wheel, the pendulum swing has stopped of his his endless rebirth and then screwing up of whatever he's rebirthed himself as? Um, (laughs) Or is this just one more note in the cycle? And your point about the distancing of Don from everyone in his life here at the finale and the fact that this episode was called person to person, which is a reference to that. He's making all these collect person to person calls to these key characters in his life through the finale. 
suggests to me maybe something more conclusive, which is maybe that structure is set up to suggest that Don can only connect through advertising, that actually his human connect, that he's not going to go back and give Sally a pep talk and a hug, and that he just doesn't get people. He only gets, quote unquote, people, the concept that advertising sells to us. And maybe it's much more bleak than I thought. And that ad itself is about this sort of notion, this kind of goofy notion of corporate togetherness, right? It's like it's about connection through the purchase of soda. I mean, right. that, that's the, that is the ad that he comes up with, this sort of manufactured artificial connection that, you know, somehow through commerce we can, you know, bring all these multicultural, this multicultural vision of happiness to life. Well, through commerce, I mean, through, you know, we, Laura Bennett, one of our culture editors here, did a great interview with Bill Backer, who actually made this ad and did not seem peeved that it has been reattributed to Don Draper, who was very <laughs> generous about this uh, this um, fictional plagiarism. But he said that he came up with the ad, like, on deadline. He was headed somewhere to shoot it. He was, like, laid over in Ireland on a foggy day, and all of these multicultural travelers were socked in at this foggy airport and kind of bonding over coffee and coke and he was like he had this epiphanic moment of realizing ding that human connection over shared beverages is a genuine human thing and he was deeply sincere in this interview with Laura right he's he um, I mean we don't know what's really going on in Bill Backer's life but the thing that I think is tricky about advertising and that's very true to Matthew Weiner's portrayal of advertising is that what it does is rely on genuine human insight and observation and understanding and then bend it to cynical corporate ends. But that doesn't mean that the human observation that's being peddled is cynical necessarily. It's just the purpose it's being put to. So it's hard to know whether Don's ode to connection comes at the expense of actual human connection or because he's finally recommitting to it. And that's the ambiguity that I think makes the finale interesting and sort of worthy of the larger ambitions of the show. Yeah, I mean, you could read it two ways or you could read it both ways at once. You can be happy for Don that he's found the one thing that he's good at. Again, I mean, he's found it many, many times over the course of the show. Um, oh, wait, the- I should be an admin. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a lot of reminders. Um, and, and that he can, he, can reconnect with, he can reconnect with people through this one means. And, you know, he, he will need uh, monthly or yearly reminders of this for the rest of his life, but it's okay. He's found it again, and, he, and he's and he's fine for now. And you can also, at the same time, feel sad that that's the only way that he can forge connections with people. I also think that one theme that emerged in the last seven episodes, the sort of second half of this final season, was all the main characters um, from what was once Sterling Cooper are are filthy rich and pretty self absorbed and self satisfied. I mean, I'm I'm happy that a lot of them, like Joan, are going off and starting businesses and not being held down by the man. But there, you know, there there were various moments throughout the last seven episodes where we're reminded of just how well off they are. You have the sense that they're going to really enjoy the the me decade. That like they're they didn't take a whole lot from the sort of six from the sixties. Like Roger, um, you know, is probably more than anyone <laughs> experimented in the counterculture, and he emerges on the other side of it. A rich white guy who whose life is not really in any meaningful way changed. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know that the decade in any way seems to have really affected the trajectory of, of any of the lead characters, which to me suggests that maybe Matthew Weiner has a relatively dim view of the transformative power of the decade on any one individual character. All right. One thread we talked about in the Mad Men, Mad Men TV Club this week was just how many abandoned children there were in the last six episodes mm. and mm. to what degree the show is about the question of whether Don is going to abandon his children in their moment of need as literally every like 
I was making the list as I was writing the entry. There's like nine characters who have got lost children. And every character that we have any iota of a relationship with makes some kind of recognition or gesture toward their children. Like literally the only people who just truly abandon them are are Greg, Joan's rapist ex-husband. And I think that's telling because Matthew Weiner is... He, as he's pointed out, the age of baby Jean, basically. He is the child of these people. So he is not necessarily interested in this time in terms of what it did at the moment, but he's very interested in this time in terms of how the new freedoms that these people enjoyed allowed them to mistreat, abandon, and abuse their kids. <laughs> um, Even Eddie Cosgrove, who's uh, the beneficiary of one of the unbroken homes in this, in this uh, series, seems to be kind of weird. According to Ken. I couldn't tell if that was a joke, but right. The, the spawn of this generation is clearly where the show is supposed to land us. And I think I think I'm somehow putting that together as I was assessing this episode did help me get a little resolution on the history question. It's like, right, Matthew Weiner is not actually interested in the 60s as a time of historical change. He's interested in how the 60s felt to the people who were raised by those people. Right, because, I mean, I think part of it hit the point that he might be making tacitly is that if you are... I don't know. How old is Don in 1959? He's like, what are we supposed to assume he is? 38? 34, 35. 35? Like, yeah. you, uh, how much are you going to change if, if, if the, this epochal moment uh, happens <laughs> when you're 35? Like, you're a pretty fully formed human being. In Don's case, you are fully formed, you've been fully formed twice, first as Dick Whitman and now as Don Draper. Like, how much chance was there for him to evolve as a character? I think, you know, there's something people have debated sort of ad nauseum about Mad Men. Does Matthew Weiner believe people can change? I think he thinks they can change a little bit, but not much. Uh, and the fact that, you know, you could summarize uh, the eight-year run of Mad Men by saying, Ad Man decides to be an Ad Man, um, <laughs> suggests that, you know, he doesn't think there's massive amounts of evolution that can happen for an adult. Um, but the kids, obviously, they're the ones who are growing up in this in this moment of great turmoil. They're being raised by these parents who are a little bit um, self-absorbed, to say the least. And so I do think you're right, Julia, that uh, that was really striking when you put together all those abandoned children in that list. Uh, and it did make me think, too, yeah, this is about this is about them, what it was like to to grow up in that in that moment. All right. It is time to draw the segment to a close. Before we do, where does Mad Men rank on your list of all time great television shows? Is this one for the ages? Is it one that we'll still be watching in 20 years or will it fade and just seem kind of like northern exposure? That was nice. (laughs) That won some Emmys. Um, No offense to northern exposure. (laughs) My top four, certainly, of this recent golden age is probably the same as anyone else's top four. It's The Sopranos, The Wire, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad. And I think Mad Men is is some ways behind The Wire and The Sopranos. But uh, for pure pleasure in watching it and just luxuriating in the color and style and wit and repartee, it, it does edge out Breaking Bad for me. So it's number three. I have a boring response, which is basically that I completely agree with what Jessica just said. But for me, it's slightly different because I think the appeal for Mad Men and the reason I think I enjoyed it more than... Actually, I think I enjoyed it more than everything but The Wire. And the reason uh, is not because I think it's the best of those shows. I think it's probably the fourth best of those shows, but because it's about white-collar office life. Like, that was... That I was always most invested in the show when it was taking place within the confines of Sterling Cooper or one of its successor organizations. And I don't think any other show has ever dramatized office life as wonderfully and accurately 
as Mad Men, even though my own office life is in so many ways like very, very different than that. It captures the relationships and the aspirations and the excitement and the ambitions of working in an office and working in a creative office. And that was just like I always felt like my own life was reflected in some weird way on the on the screen. And that was really exciting. The only other show that was like that for me is Mary, Mary Tyler Moore, which is my favorite, favorite show of all mm-hmm. time, completely different kind of show, but also a show about office life. And actually, if you go back and watch the finale of Mary Tyler Moore, it in some ways has some similar notes to the finale of this show. And I think I'm just I just love that. I love watching television shows about people at work. John, your your close and tender relationship with Kenny Cosgrove has always <laughs> warmed my heart over the years. You love him so much. I do. I really do. He he my he is the one I will mourn the most. Uh, I cannot say the same about Kenny Cosgrove, <laughs> but I can say the same about Office Life. I mean, I think one of the things that was boldest about Mad Men and maybe the most pathbreaking of any of these shows is how revolutionary its sense of the stakes were. You know, we've got drug dealers times two with The Wire and Breaking Bad and and their relationship to law enforcement and human volition. Uh, and then in The Sopranos, you have, you know, a mob boss. And I, I actually have, I should admit here, I haven't watched The Full Sopranos, so I cannot assess the entirety of this question. But my sense is that it is a little bit more Mad Men-ish in terms of the focusing on the internal psychodrama of the ostensibly bad guy rather than the like what's going to blow up and is he going to get caught plot but the stakes were revolutionary there were episodes that made you really 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 care whether a bunch of fictional people from 50 years ago were going to get the beans account or not (laughs) and like really care about the power struggles within that group like what did it mean if so-and-so gave the pitch versus someone else and that was kind of great like i think that's the sort of thing that if you bring that the skeleton of that plot without the rest of the trappings to any Hollywood executive, they'd be like, um, no, no, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and that ability to take the minutia of human interaction and tease out how big and how intense those moments feel to people when they're in them, whether or not they're wearing awesome Technicolor vintage outfits is the thing I will remember most fondly about the show. And also it dramatizes the creative process, which I think is something that's really appealing, probably to those of us who like to think that that's what we do for a living. All right. Well, creatively and nostalgically, we say farewell to Mad Men. Thank you guys so much for coming in to impersonate Steve and Dana. It was really fun (laughs) chatting with you. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Julia. All right. Well, Dana and I are now back from our isolation chamber, um, none the wiser for the fates of, uh, about the fates of uh, Don Draper and Peggy whatever her name is and uh anyway uh julia was it fun Uh, it was fun i liked it it was fun good all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor dana what do we have Steve, this week, the Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by the Netflix original documentary series Chef's Table, which offers viewers the chance to go into the lives and the kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. This is directed by David Gelb, who made Jiro Dreams of Sushi, if you saw that wonderful documentary about an obsessed sushi chef who now has a little um, storefront place in New York. You can try his incredible sushi. The question Chef's Table asks is, what makes a chef? Is it signature dishes and kitchen experience? Is it culinary training and personal heritage? Or is it something else? You go behind the scenes for an up-close look at the amazing journeys of six culinary superstars from around the world. Australia, Sweden, Argentina, Italy, there are two American chefs, and all the episodes of Chef's Table are now streaming on Netflix. Okay, back to you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Okay, moving on. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? So I am going to endorse the uh, the Broadside Archive. Steve, I think you're going to be into this. The uh, the English Ballad Broadside Archive at the University of California at Santa Barbara, which has all just been put online. I know about this thanks to the really wonderful blogger and writer Allison Meyer, who just clued me into it in a in a piece that we'll also link to on the show page. But um, so so broadside ballads, or as they're sometimes called broadsheet ballads, were basically the popular balladry of the 17th century, right? When the early days of printing and every day or every few days, there would be new songs circulated in the town with little woodcut illustrations and people would sing them or maybe learn them from the sheets. And it's this huge history with a lot of surviving um, manuscripts that are finally all being put together into one big database by the University of California at Santa Barbara, even though they're located all over the world in various libraries in various countries. But this archive is so much fun to browse. You can go in there and not just see reproductions of the entire, the way these broadsheets looked, but you know, annotations. You can hear sometimes recordings of people singing the songs if they know how the songs went. So you can have a really almost tactile experience of these documents from nearly 600 years ago. It's really, really exciting. So we'll put a link to that on the show page. It's the University of California at Santa Barbara's Broadside Ballad Archive. Hmm, that does sound that does sound very cool. Uh, all right, Julia, what do you got? I have a New York City recommendation that I think is appropriate to our transportation-saturated episode. In the hunt for new modes of transportation for my children, Richard, Scary, Obsessives both, to try, my husband and I have been just going all over New York City to do different things. We've been riding ferries. We've been taking subways. We've been taking Metro North trains. We've been taking the bus. And a couple weekends ago, we went and took the tram. I was just going to say, you got to take them on the Roosevelt Island tram. To Roosevelt Island. Uh, the tram you may remember from various Spider-Man movies. It is a contraption in many Manhattan that you never encounter unless you have occasion to be in that exact corner of New York or go to Roosevelt Island or head down the FDR Drive underneath it. But it is a gigantic, glossy, red, funicular-type car in the sky that will carry you up across some arching cables onto this skinny little sliver of an island in the middle of the East River. And on Roosevelt Island, you can visit Four Freedoms Park, which is a relatively recently built, though not recently designed, memorial to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was designed in the early 70s by the architect Louis Kahn, but was built in the mid-aughts. And it's a really cool memorial. It, it borrows a little bit from some of the big Washington-type memorials. There's a big bust of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's head that's sort of nestled in this niche. There's a speech, an excerpt of a speech he made engraved on a wall. There's some stately lines of trees that create neat vanishing point. Like it would be a good place to go for a sketching class if you were studying perspective because there's all kinds of interesting angles to be found. But it's also just a beautiful place to spend a sunny day and picnic with your family and think a little bit about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And the vantage point feels apt. You're looking out on New York Harbor, the East River, all of the traffic coming to and fro. And when you think about what a global force Franklin Delano Roosevelt was, it it feels apt. So fun transportation, fun picnics, fun history. Go to Roosevelt Island and see Four Freedoms Park. All right. So for uh, my endorsement this week, uh, I'm going to point people in the direction of the 80s rock and roll band Lone Justice, which I hadn't listened to in decades and just happened to come up on my iPod while I was driving back from Toronto last week. And uh, that got me listening to their first two albums again. I, I think they're both great. The first one, it's it's funny. They're just one of those snake bit tragedies that the, that the music business produces every few years or so. Huge amount of buzz. They were signed to Geffen Records for their first record. All these 
very talented people converged upon them. The lead singer was Maria McKee. I think she was, and she was writing the music too. She was, I think, 18 years old. She was very pretty, huge voice. And they were doing cow punk or country rock. And, um, you know, Tom Petty co-wrote a song for the first album. I know Bob Dylan was brought in to co-write a song. Little Steven Van Zandt, like all these kind of rock dinosaurs just gravitated to it and overburdened it. And they kind of flamed out after a couple of records. If you haven't heard them, if you haven't played them out um, and gotten sick of them as I did probably back in like 1985, 1986, they're refreshing. They're good. That's good music. So highly recommended. Uh, go back and rediscover Maria McKee and Lone Justice. All right. Thanks, uh, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. I have often walked on the street before But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before I'm Alex Wagner, co-host of Podcast for America, a new show from Panoply. We have a lot on deck this week, including why politicians don't ever want to answer any questions, ever. Also, why can't Republicans talk about the Iraq War? And finally, Mitt Romney stepped into the ring with Evander Holyfield, and we can't stop talking about it. So stop what you're doing and subscribe to Podcast for America at iTunes.com slash Panoply.